Father God, we are eternally grateful for the sacrifice that your son Jesus gave on the cross for all of us, for all who would respond to your grace. And so, Lord, there is so much reason to celebrate this morning. And I pray that we would celebrate with open ears as we listen to Brad's message that you have prepared for him to give to us this morning. Help us to to know what your spirit is saying to us. Uh, Give us the inspiration to respond in obedience, God. And may this all be done as a form of worship to you because you are worthy of praise, Lord. Amen. 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 Well, I'm gone for a week and you have to reintroduce me, I tell you. I, I tell you, it's, uh, it's good to be back. Um, Meg and I were away uh, last weekend. We were up in Vernon, actually, uh, for my grandfather's funeral, who passed away suddenly a uh, week before that. And his name was Mel. And uh, we had the privilege to be up there for spring break and spend a little bit of time with him just before, week before he, he passed away unexpectedly uh, at age 91 of a heart attack as he was getting out of his truck after an afternoon run uh, to Home Depot. So that was a wonderful privilege for us. Uh, my daughter, who is six, who hasn't been to a lot of funerals, at least that she can remember, or people who are close to her. I don't entirely know what it was that she expected at the funeral service, but afterwards she came up to me and she said, Dad, I'm really confused. And I said, there wasn't like a lot of crying at the service. And uh, I don't know, I think she had this sort of picture in her mind that there would be people like falling all over the place, just weeping and devastated and, you know, un- uncontrollable. Uh, and I think, she, I think she was secretly hoping for a lot of drama at the funeral that she could kind of go and report to her class that she'd been to a funeral and this is what happens at a funeral, you know. But uh, she seemed a little skeptical. We said to her, well, great grandpa, you know, he lived a long life. He knew Jesus He enjoyed a good life, and so there was lots to celebrate, and she still felt, I think, a little bit let down after all of that. But that's the way it goes, I suppose. Uh, When we reflect on the theme of Easter this morning and the resurrection and the hope that we have in Jesus, though, I think my daughter's reflections on a service like that and my daughter's question reminds me uh, that last Saturday when we gathered as a family, there was a deeper reason why we weren't completely gripped by or sorrow, uh, or fear. And 1 Thessalonians 4.13 in the New Testament reminds us and says, for a person of faith, you don't grieve like those who have no hope. And it reminds us that only because of Easter and because of the resurrection is that possible. And so this morning, to God's word, we're going to see what the implications are for each one of us as we face ultimate questions of life and death. And so if you have your Bibles, you can open them to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This has been, these themes have been highlighted for me very clearly as we've been going through our teaching series uh, through the uh, Lent season called the Gospel. And as we've moved through, we've looked at a number of things in preparing our hearts uh, for the Easter weekend and asking ourselves questions about what it means to know God and what it means. Uh, Questions are at the very heart of Christianity. So we've looked at uh, things like, if you start over on the far left-hand side with those tags, we've looked at God. We've looked at God's work in the world. We've looked at what it is uh, that he initiated. And then we looked at 
what in, what's our part been as humanity in the area of willful disobedience and reminded ourselves of the truth that all of us are accountable for our own actions before God. And we then looked at God's solution to the problem in sending his son uh, Jesus and born fully God and fully man, lived and died and was raised to life again, uh, which is what we celebrate and proclaim this day. And so this morning, we're going to look at that last tag for us in the gospel, a conversation that we started last weekend with Dr. Brian Cooper and asked, if all of these things are true, then what does it mean? Or what is our response that it calls out of each one of us? And I think this response has to find traction in the circumstances of real life, like attending the funeral of a person that you know and that you love. And a Sunday like this morning on Easter reminds us, uh, gospel reminds us that the resurrection is not simply a cute that promises us some kind of future hope in glory, but that the resurrection and the hope of heaven has to bleed backward and challenging times like when a loved one passes away. So at Christmas and at Easter, you want me to switch over here? All right, I'll do this then. This is good. So as Christians, a Sunday like Easter Sunday reminds us perhaps more than any other time of the year that we have a solid answer to the ultimate questions of life. The resurrection puts that into perspective for us. Because all of us know, we don't often think about it because it's not very encouraging for us, but all of us know that ultimately we're all going to die. Eventually. But the message of Easter reminds us of the fact that as a Christian, even though I know this to be true, I can live with hope and confidence because I have a solid answer to the question, what happens when I die? What's beyond the end and through that door? The resurrection allows you and I to answer that question and live in the world as people of hope. So let's look into God's Word this morning, and we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's one of the earliest liturgies, or one of the earliest things that was recited by the early Christian movement as recorded in uh, the first century. And in 1 Corinthians 15, the the foremost apologist of the first century, a man by the name of Paul, asks and answers a series of philosophical questions about ultimate realities in our life. And he's deeply philosophical, but he's also deeply practical and compelling in the way in which he presents these questions, because each of us has to address them in some way or another. And the thing that I like about 1 Corinthians 15, about the Bible in general, is that the Bible's not glib about these things. It doesn't make light of these things. It doesn't say in 1 Thessalonians 4, well, When you grieve, you shouldn't grieve. It says, no, no, you grieve. Go ahead and grieve. But don't grieve like there's no hope beyond that door. And so the Bible doesn't make light of it, but it does give us clarity and certainty in the face of some of the ultimate questions that each of us needs to answer 
as we confront and think about our own mortality. When I think about what gets, what happens at the end of that treadmill, the gospel is kind of a shorthand, a phrase that we use to kind of describe the reality of if it is really good news, all of the things that Christians claim to be true, it provides a framework or an answer to that question. And so look with me at what the Bible has to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I'm going to read a selection of verses from the New Living Translation. Not all of them will come up on the side screens, but if you have uh, uversion.com, if you downloaded uh, the Bible app onto your phone, uh, your smartphone, if you have your uh, Bible with you, then feel free to, to take it out and uh, follow along as we begin this conversation. It's a conversation about life, death, resurrection, and ultimate realities that begins in this way in 1 Corinthians 15, chapter 1, where Paul says, let me remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news that I preached to you before. You welcomed it then, and you still stand firm in it. I love this verse. It, it kind of opens the conversation for us by reminding us that the message of Jesus is good news to be welcomed and explored. And we can ask questions and probe into it. And when you allow it to, when you welcome it into your life and make room for it in your life, it moves you to a place of certainty, of knowing what was beyond that door in the ultimate reality. And so verse 2 keeps going and says, it's the good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message that I told you, unless, of course, you believed something that was never true in the first place, or unless you never believed it in the first place. And the whole, that's the whole conversation that chapter 15 is going to tease out. This whole idea about Jesus and the fact that we celebrate on Easter Sunday that he was resurrected from the grave, is it true or is it untrue? And what are the implications? So Paul keeps going in 1 Corinthians 15 Verse 3, I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me, this being from eyewitnesses, that Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said. He was buried, he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. He was seen by Peter, who denied him. He was seen by the twelve who followed him, the disciples from the early accounts. And then after that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Paul's saying here, you want to you check out if this is true or not? Go talk to the people. They're still alive. They'll tell you what they saw. They'll tell you what they heard. They'll tell you. And you, you, you need to explore this a little bit more. Then he was seen by James and later by some of the apostles. And so here in one place in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, maybe more than anywhere else in the New Testament, we have kind of the gospel in a nutshell, our, our core beliefs as Christians, a summary statement, uh, as it were. The first one he starts with is Christ died for our sins. So there was a purpose behind Christ's death, that it was vicarious it was substitutionary that God's son did something for you and for me that we could not do for ourselves. He came to set us free from the penalty of disobedience 
of our willful disobedience and rebellion against a holy and righteous and almighty God to whom we stand accountable. And his death was not an accident. It was not unplanned. This was part of, it says, secondly, according to the scriptures. This was a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. See, from the very beginning of the Bible, right back in Genesis, God gives a promise and says God has a plan to redeem and restore humanity, to free us from the curse of sin and death that entered our world through our first parents, Adam and Eve. And we see this come up later on in this text. Over and over again, Paul says, he died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried. He was really, really dead. There, there wasn't, you don't bury somebody that's not dead. Uh, the guys who were in charge of the execution, Roman soldiers, this was their profession. This is what they did for a living. They were responsible to know whether someone was dead or alive before they released them to stick them in the grave. And so Paul reiterates this and says again, he died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, certified dead, and then he was raised again from the dead on the third day. And so the language is inclusive here of the third, the three days, Good Friday being day one, Holy Saturday. I like that video of the kids, of the kids, the Saturday. And then Easter Sunday is day three. So he was raised from the dead on the third day. And then right again, he says he was seen by over 500 witnesses, including people who were skeptical about it. I love the, the way that the Bible pictures it. He says, some, uh, when Jesus gathered them together, those who followed him, says he appeared to them, and they believed, but some doubted. So he appeared to over 500 people, including skeptics, at various places in different times over the course of 40 days. So this, again, is something that Paul's saying, you can't make this stuff up. Go and talk to these people. Ask them questions about what they saw and what they experienced. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, that this is what I received from those who are eyewitnesses, and it's most important. I love the way New Testament scholar N.T. Wright puts this in his book, Surprised by Hope. He says, listen, you take, you take out Christmas out of the Bible, and he says, I know, you know, he, he tries... Don't read, uh, don't hear what he's not saying. He says, you take out Christmas, and in biblical terms, you lose two chapters at the beginning of Matthew and Luke in terms of the account of what happens, but nothing else. Take Easter away, however, and you don't have a New Testament. You don't have Christianity. As Paul says, you're still in your sins. And so really for Christians, Easter is our greatest day. And he writes, there ought to be an eight-day festival with champagne served every morning prayer or even before morning prayer. And then he asks a question, is it any wonder that people find it hard to believe in the resurrection of Jesus if we don't get excited about it? If we don't throw our hats in the air? So I had the kids lead us in that song this morning, the words of which say the greatest day in history was the day that Jesus rose again, the death was beaten, and you and I were rescued by God. 
then in the writing of this in the first century, just as now in our day and time, there are, there are skeptics who want questions and who ask questions, and legitimate ones, I think, about this whole idea of bodily resurrection. And the skepticism can range from, uh, range from just complete dismissiveness to genuine curiosity. Because when you think about it from our culture's perspective, a post-enlightenment standpoint, the whole idea of raising from the dead seems, well, well, it seems impossible, doesn't it? So Paul continues the conversation, recognizing that this is the crowd to whom he is speaking. In verse 12, he says, tell me this. Since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying there will be no resurrection of the dead? For if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all of our preaching is useless. Your faith is useless. And we as apostles would all be lying about God. For we've said that God raised him from the grave, but that can't be true if there really is no resurrection from the dead. And if there's no resurrection from the dead, verse 16, Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless. And you're still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, (laughs) as Christians, we are to be pitied more than anybody else in the whole world. See, in the ancient world, historians have established that every single worldview in the first century believed in life after death. The only debate in the first century was what form did it take? Was, it, was there something that happened to your physical body or was it just more kind of a spirit thing that happened? But since the Enlightenment, as Christians, we've had to actually defend both the possibility and the need for bodily resurrection. And so what Paul is arguing here for is maybe sounds a little bit foreign to us, but really what he's trying to say is there's only two possibilities. Either the accounts that we read earlier this morning from the New Testament happened or they didn't happen. And if the resurrection of the body doesn't happen, if it's not a possibility whatsoever, then the first thing he says is that, well, If that's the case, over 500 people lived a lie, went to their deaths to perpetuate the most horrible hoax in all of history if resurrection of the body doesn't happen. But many of those who went to their death proclaiming and declaring Jesus is Lord as raised from the dead were killed and persecuted for that and were asked very specifically by the Roman Empire to recant that proposition and say, that's not, just tell us that's not true and we'll let you live. And in that situation, it's unlikely that they would have been willing to go to their deaths for something that they knew was not true. Over 500 people maintained consistently in all records and accounts that they saw Jesus resurrected from the grave. The other thing that 
would be true if the physical resurrection did not happen is that God's power doesn't extend that far. And that God's power then has a limit on it, and that limit would be death, and the death ultimately wins. And if this is the case, some might say, as uh, is done later on in verse 32 of this text, well, go ahead, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. At the end of the day, death gets the final word, so in contemporary language we might suggest, hey, you're here for a good time, not a long time. Enjoy your life. When you get to the end of that treadmill, there's nothing there. In other words, if the physical resurrection, bodily resurrection, doesn't happen, life after death is a preposterous idea. But one of the questions that we need to ask ourselves as Christians is, is that a chance that we really want to take? I would agree with you definitely that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then, as Paul says there, faith in Jesus is completely useless and the pity party should begin. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, if this life is the highest hope and grandest dream that I can aspire to, then 2.18 billion people of all ages spread across the globe this morning are indeed completely delusional and should be openly mocked for believing in the most completely ridiculous and comprehensive and sick hoax that history has ever known. If the resurrection didn't happen, then you and I have based our lives, if you're a person of faith, on smoke and mirrors. The message translation puts verse 19 this way. If all we get out of Christ is a little inspiration for a few years, then we're a pretty sorry lot. So that's one possibility that if the resurrection of the body didn't happen, then we should all pack it in and go home. But, and this is the hinge moment upon which all of history hangs, friends, if the gospel is true, if indeed Christ was raised to life by the power of Almighty God, if Christ was raised from the dead, then not only is resurrection a mere theoretical possibility, it's actually an historical reality. It's not if it has happened, it's that it has happened. And here's the real point that Paul is making in verse 20. If it happened once, it can and will happen again. Christ is the first in a long legacy of those who are going to leave the cemetery, Paul says. The first fruits is the language that he uses there of a coming harvest. And so in June, our family's going to go over to Salt Spring and we'll take my grandfather's uh, remains to his family plot. But we don't do that thinking that that's where he's going to stay for all of the rest of eternity and we'll never see him again because Jesus was raised from the dead on that first Easter Sunday morning. And so we believe as those infused and living with Christian hope that those who respond to Jesus by placing their faith and confidence in him will also be raised to life. Look with me at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 21 to 26. This isn't going to come up on the screens for you. So you see, 
just as death came into the world through one man, that being Adam, the resurrection from the dead has begun with another man, that being Christ. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to the lineage of Adam, everyone who belongs to the lineage of Christ will be given new life. But there's an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first, and then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back a second time at the end of the age. And after that, the end will come when he will turn the kingdom over to God the Father, having destroyed every ruler and authority and power, for Christ must reign until he humbles all enemies beneath his feet. If Christ is raised from the dead, then not only is resurrection more than a theoretical possibility, but has become an historical reality. But everyone who belongs to Christ will participate and experience resurrection life. Notice the language of conquest that is used here in this text. That God has demonstrated his power and authority and has vindicated Jesus as who he said he is, proving that Jesus was who he said he was as the Son of God. And not only that, but God has demonstrated his power and authority and broken or shattered the power that sin and death has held in our lives and in the universe. And that's why when we gathered last Saturday, we could have a funeral for my grandfather that isn't completely racked with sorrow. Because in verse 26, the text is clear that death has been beaten. So it's natural for us to fear the process or the thought of dying in some ways as humanity. But Hebrews chapter 2, verse 15 reminds us that as people of faith, we are not to be enslaved by a fear of death. Yes, each of us will die. But as Christians, we have a confidence when we think about that experience, that we face death with someone on our side who has already defeated it, who has been there and done that, and who is more powerful than it. It's like bringing someone with you into the schoolyard that, you know, the day before you kind of looked at the bully and thought, I don't think I could beat that dude. And then you think, well, i got a friend who's much bigger and stronger than that, so I'm going to bring him along with me. And you come in, and you have a different level of confidence walking into the schoolyard that next day, like, hey, you got a problem with me? you got to deal with my friend. Suddenly, it's not so frightening anymore because you have somebody in your corner who is stronger than that which you feared. And that's why... N.T. Wright says that Easter is our grandest moment and should be a celebration with champagne before morning prayer. Because faith in Jesus, if the resurrection is true, is anything but useless, and the celebration that will go on for all of eternity should already begin. Look with me at the final verses of this chapter. Read in verse... 26, which says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And looking ahead to verse 54, 
then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? For the sting that results in death is sin, is the sting that results in death. And the law gives sin its power. But thank God, he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, friends, this is one of the things that sets Christianity apart as distinct from other perspectives and world religions. Because other religious systems don't claim resurrection status for their originators. Muhammad or Joseph Smith of Mormonism are hailed by their followers as prophets who lived but who died. But Christianity hangs on the claims of one who claims that he rose again from the grave and what that accomplished for you and for me, not just in the future, but in the here and now. Christ won for you and for me victory over sin and death and the fear that accompanies them in our world today. Because the resurrection has very clear present implications for us. And one of those implications is that as a person of faith, you're free to orient your life differently when your ultimate hope lies beyond your tombstone. You live differently because of the resurrection. When we were looking through my, my grandfather's files, he's a very, very, very well-organized person, and we found a file that was entitled, When I Die, dot, dot, dot. So we opened it. And it included a bunch of his thoughts on the service, which we'd already been over. It, in, it included a list of people that should be called to inform uh, them of his passing. So we did that. It included notes about his will. It included a bunch of other end-of-life type items. But it also included a note, which he wrote last summer, which speaks to the way that he lived his life each day as a 91-year-old widower who lost my grandmother eight years earlier. And the handwritten note read, I am in no way afraid of death, in capital letters. The Lord and I have lived together in reasonable harmony all of these years, and I am so grateful to him for having given me the privilege of living in his world along with my dear companion, Allison, whom he now has with him. And then he signed it and dated it. Mel Sumner, April 30th, August 30th, 2011, and put it in the folder, When I Die. I am in no way afraid of death. When you don't fear death, it opens up the possibility for you to live your life in different ways. It, it opens up doors for you to live with hope and with gratitude and courage that comes from knowing that your ultimate hope lies beyond your tombstone. There's a freedom that comes 
You can release your time and resources with hearts full of generosity because you know that it's all God's gift to you and that one day it'll run out and it's not yours to begin with. There's a passion that can come and flow into your life in helping other people who are suffering in places like Guatemala, like our team did over spring break and as they do each year. Because you have this this compelling sense that there is hope and you desire to extend it into the lives of others who have not heard or do not know or who are suffering. There's a passion that comes into your life to talk about your hope with friends and with family members and neighbors that you don't fear death because of the hope that we have in Christ. You parent your kids differently because you know that your ultimate hope and prayer and goal for them in their lives is that they could sign and date a note that says, I am in no way afraid of death and mean it. When your ultimate hope lies beyond your tombstone, you're fearless. Not reckless, but you're bold. Because you're living as a person of hope and you're calling others to embrace that reality. Maybe you're here today and this is a completely new idea for you. Maybe you've always thought of the story of Jesus as a somewhat interesting and cute narrative that is designed to give hope to people who uh, are here for their few short years and make a couple circles on this globe. But I love the way that poet John Updike puts this in his poem, Seven Stanzas for Easter. He says it this way. Just read two of the stanzas. Let's not mock God with metaphor, analogy, sidestepping, transcendence, making of the event of the resurrection a parable, a sign painted in the faded credulity of earlier ages. Let us walk through the door. The stone is rolled back, not paper mache, not a stone in a story, but the vast rock of materiality that in the slow grinding of time will eclipse for each of us the wide light of day. Each and every one of us will be faced with the rock that eclipses the light of day. You see, that makes the resurrection not just an interesting philosophical question about what God may or may not have done in history, it brings it into that realm for us of requisite personal response. Because the scripture is clear that we read that the hope is available for all those who are in Christ. And the response that God calls is one of faith and repentance, which are really two sides of the same coin. That's how resurrection hope comes from being a philosophical reality to being a personal reality in your life and in mine. And you need to know that if you're here today and you've not come to a place of responding to God in that way, that's our deepest hope and desire and prayer for you. That you would come to a place of responding to God 
and the incredible act of love and self-sacrifice that he made on your behalf. Recognizing your sin, repenting of it, and receiving the gift that Jesus offers. Restoration of relationship with God, not only in this life, but beyond the tombstone in the life to come. Because as Christians, we have answers to life's ultimate questions. The resurrection means that you and I can know and experience hope today. Maybe you're in a place right now in your life where you don't feel that hopeful about what the future holds. Maybe this has been a rough season of your life. Maybe you'd like one of our prayer team to spend some time praying with you. Dave and the team will be available just over at the side and at the back. We move into a time of worship and response in song. You can experience and know, we want to pray for you, that you'd experience and know the hope of the resurrection today. The last verse of 1 Corinthians 15 says, Thanks be to God that he gives us victory, not just over death, but also victory over sin through our Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you're a person who has grown up in a faith community. You have heard resurrection repeated every Easter since you can remember. But there's still patterns and thoughts and attitudes and behaviors in your life that you think to yourself, I wish I could get rid of this. I don't know if I can or not. The resurrection declares that the power of sin in your life has been broken and that there is possibility for us and an invitation for us to walk in discipleship and pattern and follow our lives and make decisions to follow our lives after Jesus more closely. Maybe you need to spend some time in personal reflection this morning saying, God, is there anything going on in my life? Maybe there's bitterness or, or anger or rage or anything else going on in your heart, in your life this morning that you say, I just have not been able to get a hold o- over this in my life. And the resurrection calls out to us again and says you can experience victory over that through the power and the authority of the resurrected Lord. The scripture says the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead lives in us if you are a follower of Jesus. Would you invite God into your life again today so you can experience that victory? Because our deepest hope and prayer for you as we celebrate this Easter is that you can walk out of here today knowing and having a confidence that you can face the ultimate questions of life and death with solid answers. And you can have the faith and confidence that it is the good news that saves you and it is the good news that you welcome and you can stand firm in it and live as a person of resurrection hope. Let's pray together as the team comes and we sing in response. God, we are wonderfully grateful for a marker on our calendar that pushes us yet again to reflect 
on your incredible work in history and in our lives. We are all too guilty of just rushing through our days and our weeks, not giving adequate thought and attention to the ultimate questions of our lives. And so, Father, we pause in this place this morning to invite you by your Spirit to continue to search our hearts. To begin to shine that spotlight in those places of our lives. Those aspects in, of doubt and disbelief. And Jesus, we pray that this morning you would reveal yourself to us in a fresh and personal and powerful way to everyone who is seeking here in this place, Jesus. Everyone with questions who is exploring. And God, for those of us who feel defeated or discouraged, Father, would you lift up our eyes yet again this Easter morning. Fill us with resurrection hope to live in the authority and power that you have called us to. We choose yet again in this place today to walk and follow you. We choose to live as people of hope who have made a decision and a confession and profession to surrender our lives to you because we know that you are the one who defeated sin and death and the grave and you are worthy of it. Give us the courage and the strength and confidence to follow you in all aspects of our life.